Greetings, fans of history, antiquity, and inaccuracy, to Chapter 9 of the Dubious Book of Famous Deeds, the history podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of the Victorians by way of the 1889 British book The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. This is where you're going to find out about some obscure names and hear some stories that are in desperate need of fact-checking. My name's Paul Bates. I'm your host. I want to send some gratitude out there to a couple of listeners who sent me some support via buymeacoffee.com. Thanks to Mark Haldane, a listener of this podcast and also my other podcast, Illusionoid. So he's been a fan for a while. Thank you so much, Mark. I hope... Glasgow, Scotland is treating you well. The second supporter was anonymous, but you know who you are. I thank you for your support, and I'm really glad to hear that this podcast picks up your day. If you feel like supporting or just saying hi, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators on the internet, and as always, I appreciate any token of support because it means a lot to know that you're out there listening. I don't know what day it is where you are, but here, it's Labor Day. And what better day to learn all about working conditions in the 1800s in England. They were pretty nasty. And joining me for this episode, two extremely good friends. They're all over your television sets, and they also have their own show that they wrote Produced and starred in, it's called Bit Players. You can see it here on CBC Gem. Please welcome Chris Siddiqui and Nigel Downer. How is Bit Players doing, by the way? Is it available for stream on... It's available for stream on CBC Gem and Amazon Prime Video. We do cover some great uh, places. I mean, the UK can watch now, you know, the States can watch now on, uh, on Amazon and then... Um, Right here in Canada, you can do uh, CBC Gem, right? Nice. Okay, here we go. We're going to jump into Chapter 9 of the Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. This man is not too famous, and his deeds are not that well known. Um, So (laughs) let's just go for it, okay? Love it. Here we go. Chapter 9. Sir Titus Salt of Saltaire. Awesome name. Okay, I'm on board. Sir Titus Salt was born on the 20th of September, 1803, at the Old Manor House, Morley. So the Old Manor House in Morley, it was probably once a great manor house. But if you look oh, at a cool. picture of it, it's just kind of a small house. It's in, uh, it's in Yorkshire. It's in Yorkshire. Okay. Yorkshire, home of pudding. It's still standing. It's now a pub called the Goose and Cowslip. Mm. <laughs> it's just, just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. Yeah. So if you ever if you ever in Morley, it's a it's a, a small market town in Greater Leeds. Check out the Goose and Cowslip. It's uh it's the former home of Sir Titus Salt. Okay. Uh, let's see. His father, who was a wool stapler, that's someone who would trade in wool, buy it from the producer, sort and grade it, sell it to a manufacturer, moved okay. with his family from Morley to Crofton near Wakefield. And at Heath Grammar School near that town, his son received his education. Oh. Amazing. So far, so good for Titus Salt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just at the time when the worsted manufacturer was beginning to rise from a domestic operation to a factory institution. 
And as the change was distasteful to the older stuff manufacturers in the district around Wakefield, the trade shifted its quarters and settled at Bradford. So this is kind of what we're talking about. The Industrial Revolution and the rise of factories. Right. In England. So and these family. smaller little pockets, I mean, there are names of all these places I've never heard of. So they must have just been moving from township to township. Yeah. Seems like. Same area, close to Leeds. Nigel will know yeah. what I'm talking about. I, I do. I only know English geography based on the names of football clubs. Football, okay, fair and enough. And this is what I was going to get to. I was going to wait a bit, but you know what? We're going to jump right into it, is that um, I do know some of these places you've already mentioned, which is very obscure, but because of football clubs, because a lot of these factories, the employees ended up being players for these clubs way back when they were established. And then they established unions based on that. They wanted to represent their unions or their factories in sport against other factories. Huh. I love that. I love yeah. that. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so a lot of the teams, yeah, so a lot of the uh, old guard British teams got their foundation by being factory workers that played soccer. That, that's how cool. Arsenal, the, the Gunners, that's, that's my team, their foundation is that they were based on building armory, like building weapons. Like that's, oh, that's kind of like the cannon. Right. Like Arsenal, so that's, of course. Yeah. That's fantastic. I always thought that they were an organization of military people, like a club that was formed yeah. out of the military. But exactly. they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. But were they were they part of the military, or were they just factory workers, like charged with making munitions for the military? It was called the uh, Woolwich Arsenal Armament Factory. Cool. So it was the workers that decided to bring these guys together. All right. So the trade of the right. the manufacturer of worsted which is a, I didn't know this, this is a type of wool manufacturer that goes into suits. So whereas woolen goods will get turned into sweaters, worsted will get turned into suits. Oh, so okay. it's a, especially in the Victorian age, a huge industry. Everybody needs a huge. suit in the Victorian age. Yeah. So everything's moving to Bradford. Mills are getting built all over the place in Bradford. Among those who moved with that trade were Daniel Salt and his family. Daniel Salt, father of Titus Salt, the father continued to confine himself to the purchase and sale of wool. The more ambitious son determined to attempt the manufacture of stuffs and gave the first intimation of his specialty in the utilizing of raw materials heretofore unappreciated. All to say, this is foreshadowing he made his fortune using less common textiles in the creation right. of, uh, of cloth. A lot of $100 words in that sentence. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so my dad, as you uh, as you gents may know or may not know, is a tailor. So oh, cool. this is very interesting. This, again, I feel like I'm on top of this chapter because he has told me not so much like the foundation of, of this story in terms of, you know, what the wool was made for and what the, uh, what was the other word? Worsted. Yeah, the worsted. Worsted. But yeah. he has mentioned it in passing. Mm. So I do know like minimal uh, information about these two materials um, because he started becoming a tailor in England. So he was. Oh, right. That would have been an old trade too, right? Yeah, I mean, these are these yeah. old trades that are, huh, okay, okay. That's right, that's right. So he actually worked on the railroad. He actually did, was a postman at one point, but he got his foundation. Yeah, this is some old world shit right here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but then uh, he's a tailor, so 
So this is very familiar to Oh me. man, <laughs> I love it. This whole chapter is about the manufacture of textiles. So oh, amazing. <laughs> one so of us won't be bored. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The wool called Donskoy from the southeastern parts of Russia, grown on the banks of the River Don, was a coarse and tangled material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then considered unavailable for purposes of manufacture. Apparently, it's, it was uh, it was much used for the making of velvet donskoy. Oh, interesting! Well, I didn't know there was so many different varieties of wool. They're really underselling it too. They're really taking the negative <laughs> aspects of this thing and being like, Ugh. "Well, I mean, I think they're building up the challenges and obstacles." Oh, right, of course. The, uh, the adversity <laughs> in front the of Titus, the adversity that this man born into privilege had to encounter. Of course, of course. Okay, where were we? Ah, yes. Okay, so uh, the Donskoy was a coarse and tangled material. How to overcome the difficulties of spinning and weaving this article was the first problem Mr. Titus Salt set himself to solve. For this purpose, he set up his machinery in what was known as Thompson's Mill, Sillsbridge Lane, Bradford. I tried to look up all these mills. There are an incredible amount of mills in Bradford. There are 60 in the in the downtown area alone in Bradford, according to wow. Wikipedia. Bradford was the wool production capital of the world at the time. Huh. So he's where it's at if you want to be in the wool business. Successful in this enterprise, he extended his operations in this and other branches of the worsted manufacture and added a large factory in Union Street. His trade grew rapidly under his hands, and in a few years, he was carrying on his works not only in the two places just named, but also at Hollings Mill, Silsbridge Lane, and Brick Lane Mill, and in Fawcett Court. I feel like I've entered a craft beer name generator. Yeah, seriously. 1,000%. Also, if you know these places, then I bet you're like, oh, he went, oh, there? Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He really Ooh. spread out. What a pedigree. Wow. <laughs> Brick Alley or whatever? Wow. It was in the year 1836 that Sir Titus Salt... I don't know when he becomes a knight, but they keep calling him Sir, even at this young age. That oh, right, Sir yeah. Titus Salt achieved his greatest success. In fact, I'm just going to pause here and say, they never say when he became a knight. Like, I think I think that it was incredibly easy to become a knight back then, because almost everybody you, yeah. in this book is a Sir, and the, no one ever talks about when or why or how they were knighted. I mean, if it's also, it's 1830, so it's super early, you know, anything you do to help the empire is... Uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. oh, you great. You took w new wool and made cool velvet. Great. Night. Nighted. You're a knight. You're a knight. You're 100%. 100%. <laughs> I think it is all about appearances. And if you just look the part, they're like, he should be a knight. 100%. Yeah, totally. Dress for, you know, what is it? What, act the way you want to be seen or whatever. Oh, dress yeah. the way you want. Dress for the job you want. Yeah, 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 that's right. Act that part, man. Act that part. Okay, it was in the year 1836 that Sir Titus Salt achieved his greatest success in becoming, for practical purposes, the discoverer of the wool or hair now known in almost all parts of the civilized world as alpaca. Oh! <laughs> Huge reveal! Wow. Huge reveal! Wow. Huh. Now, discoverer here uh, takes on its traditional European meaning, which is to say that the indigenous people of Peru were using alpaca fleece to make clothing for thousands of years before, <laughs> before this was ever introduced in Europe. 
<laughs> well, I mean, yeah, fair enough. Well, so you great. know, give the guy yeah. credit. No one's ever seen it before there, so he's the first dude. Right. Right? Yeah. This is like some, some Christopher Columbus stuff, you know what I mean? Like, he's mm-hmm. like, I discovered this new continent. Nah, dude. Nah, dude. This, we, you know. Meanwhile, people decked out in alpaca yeah. clothing. The existence of the animal called the paca, or alpaca, had indeed been known nearly 300 years before, and its long fleeces were boasted of by the Spanish governors of Peru in the 16th century. But no one in England had operated upon the article with much success, and it was shown to Mr. Salt by a Liverpool broker as a novelty in 1836. So, he was in Liverpool, he ran into this guy who's like, I have a warehouse full of... (laughs) bales of alpaca wool that i need to unload please take it off my hands and you know titus salt was like yeah sure i'll i'll experiment with it and he found that if he spun it with cotton it could produce durable light and lustrous cloth at a reasonable cost so it was almost like making a discount silk Right. Is what alpaca uh, produced. And he presented a gown made from the fabric to Prince Albert for Queen Victoria. And the material became highly fashionable, creating enormous demand. So Uh, there you go. Gave it to the queen. All of a sudden, everybody wanted a piece of that alpaca. I feel like, you know, in in that discovery of how to really fine tune or fine weave that that alpaca uh, was it hair, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think it's alpaca wool, actually. I was just going to say, I feel like it's some really cheesy montage of him just really trying to figure out all the different ways to like to make it work. Like just, yeah, like yeah. looking at it, it's like, ah, oh, pulling his own hair out. And he just can't figure it out. Busting the windows open of his like, you know, Victorian. Oh, yeah. oh <laughs> Well, I know like Aurora years ago got back into knitting and in the like inside knitting circles alpaca wool became the new thing people were like don't get cotton or whatever whatever the regular type of yarn is get alpaca yarn because it's spun differently and it's not spun with cotton it's just Mm. by itself and it's stronger and more durable and yada yada so alpaca wool just came into fashion again i would say in the past five ten years I feel like alpaca is like that one animal that becomes hot every six months. Like everybody remembers what an alpaca is. Yeah. They like to say the word alpaca and then they like looking at alpacas. They pop up on your Instagram, on the socials, and then they disappear for a bit and then they mm-hmm. come back. Because also an alpaca is like a, a, a llama, right? It's like a small llama. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. It is easily the most adorable creature ever created. It is. <laughs> I would say the llama is the poor man's alpaca. Oh, 100%. And that's why they're so mad. That's why they spit at you. (laughs) So angry. But alpacas, like, like I I, I actually meant to look up, like, if they have natural predators. Like, it's just like, they just seem like they're living the life. They're adorable. Everyone wants to touch them. Yeah. I I assume they're um, herbivores. You know, they're not bothering anybody. They get shorn. No, they're like herd animals. Kind of like like cute little horses almost. Yeah. For sure. I guess like a a coyote or a fox or whatever equivalent lives in South America would be after them. I don't know. Yeah. See, that's the thing too with with alpacas. It's like, they're the type of animal that you don't even know. Like, you don't even know what would want to hunt it like what right. animal would yeah. be so angry and so fierce to be like you know what man i'm gonna have an alpaca today and somebody's yeah. like hey hey douglas let's just chill out man they look they look they're cute let's it's a real niche no, animal yeah totally <laughs> yeah 
easily too adorable to kill, to harm in any way. Oh, yeah. they're beautiful. All right. So this made him incredibly rich. He made a fortune off of this textile trade in alpaca. While thus founding his private fortunes, he was not unmindful of his more public obligations. He was elected mayor of Bradford in 1848 and discharged huh. the duties of that office with punctuality and efficiency. You showed up on time. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you did your job. Great. Yeah. You did the bare minimum. <laughs> Isn't this, wow, this is really interesting. The first time that corporate money is entering politics. Well, I'm not going to say the first time, but I mean, look at this. Perfect example. Mm -hmm. I tried to look up elections around the time, and this is very close to being knighted. You are not elected by the general public at all. You're elected by the council of the city. And so it's, right. again, it's like probably seven people who are like, Look at Sir Titus. <laughs> that guy should be mayor. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, dude, when are we going to knight him? When's he going to become a sir? He was That's here right. half an hour before anybody. Yeah, who does that nowadays? <laughs> he knows all the shortest routes to work. <laughs> Meanwhile, he wears the exact same coat as the queen, so he has this yeah. woman's coat on. Mm -hmm. Good morrow, gentlemen. <laughs> look at that coat, look at that coat. Oh my God, it's <laughs> Meanwhile, his reputation as a manufacturer was advancing, and the increased demand for his goods rendered necessary improved facilities for their production. Accordingly, in 1851, the year of the Great Exhibition, that's the very first World's Fair held at the oh, Crystal cool. Palace, okay. the works at Saltaire were commenced. Okay, this finally, there's so much preamble in every chapter. We're finally getting to the part where we find out why he is in this book. So, okay, okay, great. He here's a little backstory. So, the works at Saltaire, he just didn't go to a town that was named after him. He created his own damn town. Um, <laughs> wow. So, working conditions in the 1800s were just terrible. Average workdays in mills were 12 to 16 hours, six days a week. We have an understanding of what that's like because we work on set sometimes for 12 to 16 yep. hours, but we're not, True. we're just pretending to have feelings. Whereas, <laughs> whereas these people are pushing machines or getting their arms like severed, trying to like, you know, spin yeah. cotton or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Workers were easily replaceable. If you were injured, you were just simply abandoned. Like, sorry, you can't work here anymore. Yeah. Health hazards were everywhere, both from the lack of safety features in the machines and from the smoke the machines produced. Children were used because of their cheap wages and nimble fingers. Yes, yeah, of course. You know, we saw Snowpiercer, right? They can get places adults can't. <laughs> I was just going to say. It's true. Yeah. yeah. The children would often work underneath the machines. <laughs> God, as well as changing oh, and oiling tight areas. And uh, and because children uh, being employed in mills were so popular, that means illiteracy was going up. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And poor education became rampant because you couldn't afford to go to school anymore. You had to go to work. Yeah, yeah. you instantly became a tradesman, pretty much. Yeah, there was very yeah. little distinction between, you know, child and man back then. Like there was a lot of like yeah. teenager wasn't a concept. Right. And, right. and yeah. you just send your kid to work. But also you become very skilled at doing things as an individual in terms of like, you know, if I need to fix this thing, I'm going to fix this thing. I'll do it. So crazy that at such a young age, uh, these people were so smart and so, you know, 
such great tradesmen to just be able to work with their hands. Yeah, and I think because of this, there was a generation of extremely experienced labor that grew out of it, right? Like 100%. if you started exactly. that young, you're like, I know everything there is about this industry yeah. by the time you're yeah. 30. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, <laughs> you know, life expectancy back then is what? 60s, maybe? In your 70s? Well, here's something I found out about Bradford. Okay. One of the most polluted places in England. Ah, of course. There were frequent outbreaks of cholera and typhoid. (laughs) Only 30% of children born to textile workers reached the age of 15. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) Whoa. So when you said like, you know, there was there was like a child and man, there's no teenager. That that's a legit stat. You're telling us right now that by the age of fifteen, that whole gap was wiped out. That whole age. A lot of kids just didn't live past then. In fact, the overall yeah. life expectancy of a Bradford resident was yeah. just over eighteen years. What? Jesus! Shocking. Yeah. So you're like a senior citizen when you're sixteen. <laughs> yeah, like. Time's running out. I better, I better do all those <laughs> things that I, I, I promised myself I'd do by 17. Oh, my God. Because honestly, if you're not dying on the job, you're dying from cholera or typhoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not to say it was, it was like this all across uh, England or the world, sure. right? It was this specific city. Uh, the German writer Georg Wirth proclaimed, Every other factory town in England is a paradise in comparison to this <laughs> hole. <laughs> Yo, what, what, what a harsh, what a harsh critique! <laughs> I know. Man. He really hated it. Honestly, <laughs> this is like the first trip advisor. I'll read you the whole thing because this is great. Okay. Every other factory town in England is a paradise in comparison to this hole. In Manchester, the air lies like lead upon you. In Birmingham, it is just as if you were sitting with your nose in a stovepipe. In Leeds, you have to cough with the dust and the stink as if you had swallowed a pound of cayenne pepper in one go. But you could put up with all that. In Bradford, however, you think that you have been lodged with the devil incarnate. If anyone wants to feel how a poor sinner is tormented in purgatory, let him travel to Bradford. Whoa! (laughs) What an aggressive review. Yeah, huge. this is from the 1800s, this review? Yeah. Wow. This guy's his room was like right next to the elevator and he didn't get any pillow service. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. Ugh. We're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out how Sir Titus Salt tried to improve these working conditions, and how ultimately he picked up, left, and made his own city. We'll be right back after this brief but necessary break. We're back. Okay, so... Bradford was one of the most polluted cities in Britain, if not the world, and Sir Titus Salt was one of the wealthiest men in Britain, if not the world. Let's jump back in with Nigel Downer and Chris Siddiqui and the continued adventures of Sir Titus Salt. So those were the working conditions in Bradford at the time. Sir Titus Salt was one of the few employers concerned about the level of pollution and the working conditions in his city. Oh, wow. Okay. As mayor, he tried to convince council to pass a bylaw that would lower emissions from factories, which is kind of like a thing you don't hear about from the 19th century. 100%. Wow. And the factory owners refused to do this 
on the basis that they did not believe that the smoke from their mills was harmful to people's health. Get the wow, hell out of here. Everything old is new again. So he wanted to get out of this. With the aim of consolidating his mills, he had five mills at the time in Bradford, right? So yeah. instead of continuing using those mills in those conditions, he bought a whole town's worth of land a few miles away on the river air and began construction of Salt's Mill. This is how Salt Air was born. Cool. Okay. They were opened on the 20th of September, 1853, the 50th anniversary of their owner's birthday. The works started with such eclat, received subsequently various additions and improvements, and furnished employment to a very large number of persons for whose accommodation he erected the dwellings now grown into the town of Saltaire. These comprised, at the last census taken, 820 houses occupied by 4,389 persons. Persons. Wow. Yeah. Yo, I mean, this guy, this guy created like the Silicon Valley of, of, of wool. In, like, like he, he, he straight up built a, a Google campus. Now, like everybody's just so happy and just so joyous and the classic Google campus. You know what I mean? That's so interesting. This is exactly what I thought of is that kind of like, uh, hey, uh, we're a huge corporation. We're going to build you your living community. Yeah. Inside your workplace. So Salt's Mill, when it was completed, by total floor area, was the largest industrial building in the world at the time. Four stories high, built in an Italianate style inspired by Italian Renaissance design. So it's massive and it's beautiful. Amazing. It could employ 4,000 people. It had the capacity to produce 30,000 yards of cloth every day. And each of the chimneys was fitted with an early device to remove pollutants from smoke. <laughs> Wow. The, this is nuts. This is kind of like, this is what we want to believe the best of capitalism can be, I think. Uh, right. Yeah. Like, uh, right? very unusual for the time and actually kind of unusual for today. Yeah. Yeah. It takes enormous wealth, uh, I think, on his part to do it. Although, like, on a sidebar, visionaries have been able to achieve so much because of their power and wealth and because right. that they didn't have regulatory bylaws that exist today. Like right. this guy was just like, hey, I'm just going to go buy this entire parcel of land <laughs> and do whatever I want with it. Yeah. See you later. Like, yeah. like you can't do that today, right? No. You have to consult <laughs> with governments and everything. He was just <laughs> right. rich and powerful and he did it. But he happened to do it for the benefit of his workers. Amazing. So 4,389 people in 820 houses, that's about five or six people per house on average. So that's not bad. That's, you know, mm -hmm. like you can manage, you know, might be a little cramped, but that's probably not worse than what they were living in in Bradford. Yeah. Yeah. And I really love that he created or whoever, somebody created technology so that there's no pollution or the pollution is considerably reduced. Good for him, man, to yeah. be like, no, we got to figure out a way to, to do this. That's and, amazing. You know, if nobody else is going to believe me, then I'll do it myself. Like you said, Bates and, and then boom, there you go. So here, here's a question. How far away is uh, Saltaire from Bradford? It's like a few miles. Like okay, tops. so yeah. far enough that it would be like, well, Aurelia is far from Barry, that you'd be like, okay, we're really settling a new area. And this is further away from their polluted hole that we don't have to be in anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I Amazing. guess it was far enough away to feel idyllic and removed. Right, and, okay. Cl and close enough for workers to initially commute because the mill was the first thing to get built and then eventually he built the houses. 
Right. Because I was going to say, also, you need to feed everybody. So you need a market. You need, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, j- j- just the, the regular livings and trappings of living in a town. Of course. We're going to go into what else he built here. Oh, wicked, wicked. So in 1859, he erected the Congregational Church at Saltaire. He was a very religious man, Titus Saltaire. Of course. In 1863, by erecting buildings for baths and wash houses. That's nice. Some baths and some wash houses. (laughs) Nice. Okay. Very European. Oh, yes. He provided for the cleanliness and consequent self-respect of his work people. (laughs) Yes. Respect yourselves. I like this guy. I like this guy. Bathe, you animals. (laughs) (laughs) Before this, every family had its own outside lavatory, which was an improvement over life in Bradford. That was a luxury, an outside toilet to call your own. He built 24 baths plus a Turkish bath. Fancy. Oh, I've been to one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too, man. Uh, (laughs) And also uh, washing and drying equipment for your laundry. So cool. Wow. He had, before this, furnished them with facilities for the education of their children by building a large schoolroom. But as with the extension of his works and the increase in the numbers of his workpeople, this provision had, in his judgment, become inadequate. He built a fresh range of schoolrooms in 1868 with accommodation for 750 scholars. Wow. So he's building schools and lecture halls, and not just for the kids, but also for the workers. So that's cool, too. Yo, this guy's loaded. I know, man. Honestly, by today's (laughs) money, this guy was worth 450 million pounds, which is equivalent, of course, to about $900 million in our currency. Wow. This guy was like a, a, an equivalent billionaire, basically. And, and, you know, back then it was like, I want to add 75 more rooms to this building. They're like, okay, 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they don't have to worry about heating or insulation or pipes or electricity. So I bet you back then it was just like, yeah, we're tossing a bunch of two by fours over there. And These places <laughs> had running water and gas. What? Excuse you, sir. Excuse you, well, Christopher. I stand corrected. <laughs> Jeez, Louis. Uh, a hospital and infirmary have also been added to his erections so that the needs of the sick might be relieved, while for the widows and aged, he provided 45 almshouses with a lawn and shrubbery in front. <laughs> Also neatly kept as to be models of cleanliness and comfort. So a hospital with wards and beds for 27 patients, a dispensary and a surgery operating room. The almshouses were created for workers or their families who could no longer support themselves. This is not really heard of in a lot of communities in in England, right? If you were injured, if you grew old, if you died and you left behind a widow or children and they had no ways to take care of themselves, they got put in the almshouse. Wow. Preference was given to former workers, but even people, quote, of good character were eligible (laughs) if they were just wandering through. (laughs) This is like... This guy's creating like 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 a utopian little pocket of capitalist society here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. It is weird. <laughs> 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 like you know, I mean, it, when you think about capitalism, it's all about making that profit. But he invested yeah. so much money back into this community that he just well, built. it's truly like this is he's realized it it has to be the people before the profit because i can make the money but uh, i'm not going to make it without the people and also yeah and also i think it's about 
how how good can you make this product is going to be the best product this product is going to the highest elite level of of society right so i yeah. only want the best people working therefore to make them better i will yep. give them whatever they need so they're happy you know it kind of trickles down it seems like at least that's what i'm getting from his his thoughts so early like 1880 what time is it? 1880 18, not even earlier 1850 something we're in around 1860s now 1860 i mean that's that's crazy yeah huh. this is human resources done right 100 yeah. percent. yeah in 1871 a beautiful park 14 acres in extent it's still there on the banks of the river air and within an easy distance of the factory and the town was given by Sir Titus Salt for the use of the public. And in November of the following year, a large and handsome building was provided by him to serve as a club and institute, where a large library is to be found, evening classes assemble, lectures on science and literature are delivered, and the games of chess and billiards <sighs> may be played. This is great! Yeah. I want to go there. Google Campus, bro. Holy Google Campus. 100%. I've been, and it's Google Campus for sure. <laughs> I want a DeLorean and go back in time and go to fucking Salt, Salt, what? Salt, Salt, Air. Salt, Air. Salt Air. Tell you what, the one thing it didn't have was a pub. He wasn't a teetotaler, but Sir Titus Salt refused bars being allowed in. Uh, oh, see, uh, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? He's always, a he... always a catch. Always a catch. Always a catch. So mm-hmm. you had to go, you had to go like kilometers to another place to get lit. You like, had to you go to Bradford. Yeah. On, like, yeah, you couldn't, get, right. you couldn't get lit on, uh, on the company time or the company right. property. <laughs> that long walk at nighttime <laughs> yeah. down the country road. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everybody who comes in from Etobicoke to downtown yeah. Toronto yeah, on Saturday exactly. night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going to Bradford. Yeah. <laughs> Hold your breath. Let's party in Bradford. <laughs> During the 27 years over which the history of Saltaire now extends, there have been many public manifestations of the high esteem in which Sir Titus Salt was held both by his own workpeople and the public generally. In 1829, we're jumping back a little, Sir Titus married Caroline, daughter of Mr. George Whittam of Grimsby, by whom he had a family of 11 children, and that is all we will hear about his wife. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I hope that's in the book. I hope, the, I hope you read that on the page of the book in that sentence. <laughs> Sir Titus Salt's public donations during the last quarter of a century have amounted to many hundred thousand pounds. He gave away 500,000 pounds of his time money, not like today's money, but like right. his money, to good causes over his life. After his death, his family were horrified to discover that his fortune was gone. Huh. He gave it all away, baby. And spent wow, it, of course, in a city. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Though unable from advancing years in physical infirmity to take a prominent part in public matters, his influence and his purse were ever at the disposal of patriotism and benevolence. He remained true to the liberal political opinions he had formed in his youth. He had been a radical reformer ever since he attained to manhood, and he was not a person to give up convictions that had become part of his character. A conscientious dissenter when comparatively poor, he would not throw aside his religion when he got rich. There's some major moralizing and, like, eulogizing going on here. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. (laughs) 
And having always sympathized with the sufferings of his fellow creatures, his practical manifestations of the feeling increased with his power of exhibiting them. The end. Wow. That's it. That's the story of Sir Titus Salt. Wow. Incredibly wealthy man, incredibly religious man, but also an incredibly private man, and never once told anyone why he built Saltaire. Huh. And there's lots of theories why he did it. One is Christian duty. Maybe he believed he was doing God's work in educating and elevating his workers, giving them decent living conditions and compassionate care. Yeah. Probably some of that there. Like, nobody ever needed to do that for their employees, and he did it. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, economic efficiency has to be considered, right? All of his workers in one place, consolidating Mm -hmm. his mills, right? Saving money like that. Some people maybe wondered if this was his version of just a show of wealth and extravagance, you know? Maybe there was some fronting going on. Yeah. I can only assume, though, being a child, I mean, what, he grew up in in pretty much the early, early 1800s. So he would have grown up with even worse conditions than when he was a man. So he he was of the salt of the earth, you know? He seems like that guy is like, I grew up in the sticks, and I want to help those folks. Mm -hmm. And that religious conviction that they all had back then, you know, that was probably very much part of his character, it seemed. Well, yeah, I, I think that, Chris, you really nailed it with the idea that, you know, he's built this utopia and also the fact that he grew up in, you know, the early 1800s. So as he grows up in it, he sees the death rates. He sees why and he's listening to why it's happening and is like, you know what, if I ever get that opportunity, if I ever get that chance, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward to the discovery of how to weave alpaca wool. Uh, you know, it's like, wait a second, I've got it. You know what I mean? It's that eureka moment. Totally. And then runs into some money, becomes a sir at some point. We still don't know when. And then, yeah. you know, decides to change the habits of not only a town, but a town that he decides to create. He's like, I'm going to see what happens if I flip the script on this and still produce what our people collectively are known for. Mm-hmm. You know, wild. That really tracks because, you know, I tried to look up what his political views were. He supported adult suffrage. You know, not a lot of people had the vote back then, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. Christ, of course. Women couldn't vote until like the 20th century. Only the very privileged could vote, right? Right. So he supported that. He was a huge critic of the 1834 Poor Act, uh, which made it much harder for poor people to receive aid. It was a very Republican style poor act, right? Real on the nose, too, with that. Hey, the poor act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You poor, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. Not a yeah. not all subtlety in the uh, yeah. 19th century. I found an article written about him by someone who works in human resources, and I thought this was interesting. Oh, interesting. Because he talked about it as a triumph of human resources. You know, <laughs> like you said, Nigel, make your workers want to work there, right? Give them what they need, make them happy workers, they're going to work well, and they're going to live well. But the flip side of that is... If you didn't want to work there, or if you did your job badly and got fired, you don't just lose your job, you lose your home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. True. Wow, yeah. You lose your city. All in one basket, yeah. Yeah. Of course, I didn't even think of that. We got to move out, honey. I lost my job, like... (laughs) 
how embarrassing is that too? It's not like it's not like you live in the city and you can just move from one, you know, from one corporate job to another and it's fine. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You literally have to leave the compound. Like people know, yeah. people know that Robert lost his job and his family and they all had to balance. <laughs> And also, what? now they have to go back and live in Bradford. <laughs> yeah, Bradford, yeah, that's right. right. Like oh. big downgrade there. Yeah. Oh, where's Philip? Oh, he lives in Bradford now. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. Damn. You know, I'm very interested in the other side. There's got to be some scholars at Bradford who are like, you don't know the deep secrets about Titus Salt. This guy was, you know, what? what is his weird... Gandhi Mother Teresa thing, you mm, know? What's his right. weird... I searched long and hard for that. I wanted to know if he secretly, you know, kept a dungeon. Yeah, like, <laughs> or like, you know, cut the eyelids off of the <laughs> yeah. kids who didn't work or something. You know, yeah. it's gonna be something weird. Here's the one thing you can have against him. He was staunchly against unions, refused permission for his workers to join trade unions, and opposed to any legislation whatsoever on child labor. So he still huh. employed children, even though he supported fewer working hours and was the first employer in Bradford to introduce the 10-hour working day. Nice. He still employed young children at his mill and was opposed to new legislation that would make it illegal to employ anyone under the age of nine. So he, he was ready to still employ, you know, kids under nine in his, uh, in his factory. But again, okay, I guess well. so was everybody else, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. True. True. Um, but that's the only bad news I could find about Titus Salts. I try to end these things with a, but he was still an asshole. But <laughs> I don't know. This guy is almost unimpeachable. Yeah, I here. know. Well, well, I mean, it's industry standard back then. I mean, you, you're almost too progressive if you say no children, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. so, you know what? We'll just start at nine instead of seven. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? I know, right? God. Nine years old. Ten hours. Get out of here. I well, know. I mean, Bates and I have a couple of ten-year-olds. I mean, we know the, the dexterity and the uh, abilities of nine and ten-year-olds. So, you know, True. maybe they weren't, you know, re refurbishing the giant engine. Maybe they were. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah. I don't want to dunk on my kid, but I just cannot imagine him <laughs> coming back from work and he being like, him. yeah, I guess. I just can't imagine it. I can't imagine, like, how was work? And he's just like, oh, man, yeah, I fixed all the looms. Like, no. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my son would be like, I didn't eat all day because I don't know what bread. My great thanks to Nigel and Chris for joining me on this episode. You can find Nigel Downer on social media at Nigel Downer on Twitter and at Nigel underscore Downer on Instagram. Chris Siddiqui is at Siddiqs on Twitter and at The Siddiqs on Instagram. Hey, guess what? Chris Siddiqui also has a podcast. It's a D&D podcast called Dwarven Moss. And honestly, if you like D&D, this is a great one to listen to because it has some of the funniest role players I know. It's part of the Sonar Network as well. Go there to find it. You can also catch up with Dwarven Moss at Dwarven Moss on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, catch Bit Playas on CBC Gem or Amazon Prime, depending on where you live. You can also catch up with that show at BitPlayers on Twitter and Instagram. 
Next episode, it's a big one. We're going to learn about some early navigators, and they are maniacs. I'm talking about Ferdinand de Magellan, Amerigo Vespucci, Vasco da Gama, and the biggest psychopath of them all, Christopher Columbus. The Dubious Book of Famous Deeds is produced and recorded in Toronto. It's part of the Sonar Network. Go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out the many funny and thoughtful podcasts offered there. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review. It goes a long way towards helping this show find its audience. You can subscribe as well so that you never miss an episode. Follow the podcast online at Famous Deeds on Twitter and at Famous.Deeds on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. If you want to get in touch, whether to ask questions, correct my work, lodge a complaint, or just say hi, I want to hear from you. Shoot an email to FamousDeeds at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the work I put into researching and producing this podcast, why not buy me a coffee? You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators all over the internet. Until next time, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 